Thank you, Jenna Lynn. Um, yeah, like she said, my name is Tim Price. I'm RF Campus Minister at WashU. Um, we're kind of taking over today. Uh, so if you do uh, have questions about RUF or if you've got kids going to college somewhere, there are RUFs in lots of places. If you have questions about that and you want to know what it's like uh, to be involved in a Christian ministry as a college student, please come chat with us. We'd love to, to tell you more about it and uh, the goodness of God that we've experienced through this ministry. So I'm really glad to be here with you guys this morning. It's a privilege to come and bring God's word to you. Um, so welcome, uh, if you're new, especially welcome. Uh, it's nice to meet you. I'm not the normal guy who's uh, here. Um, but I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad to bring God's word to you this morning. So we're just going to keep going through the series that you guys have been doing. Y'all have been walking through Second Samuel, been looking at the life of David, um, and last week, Pastor Dan took you guys through sort of the heinous and sinful acts of David with Bathsheba and Uriah. David kind of thinks he gets away with all of this stuff. He sees Bathsheba on the rooftop. She's beautiful, like the song says, and he takes her for himself. And then uh, after this, he takes his friend Uriah uh, who was Bathsheba's husband, and he sends him into battle, and he gets him killed by um, having all the troops withdraw during the fiercest part of the battle to ensure that he dies in battle. Okay, so like really, really wicked stuff, really awful stuff. Um, and y'all looked at this story, and you took a sort of an in-depth look at sin, and you pulled apart some of the aspects of sin, what it is. Uh, you looked at how predictable it was, how the words in the passage are a reflection of uh, the original sin of Adam and Eve in the garden and how it's always kind of the same. And it's predictable. And you looked at how sin itself is never isolated, that we're not islands, um, and that our actions in this world always affect the people around us. So that brings us to our passage today. Um, today is the part of the story where God brings to light the sins of David. To David. Uses his prophet Nathan to confront David about his wicked deeds. It's a pretty rich passage that we're going to look at. About the nature of sin and God's grace to confront us about it. And those are the two things I'm going to hit on today. I know you guys did talk a lot about sin last week. Uh, and I kind of just want to pull one more thing about the nature of it that I think is poignant in this passage today. Which really is like the sneakiness of it. And its ability to blind us to it. Particularly as it partners up with the discontentment in our hearts. And then I really want to spend some time talking about how kind it is of God that he would show us our sin and the true nature of it, that he would be gracious enough to expose us in that way. Really what I think the passage we're going to read today is a picture of is repentance. We're going to talk about repentance. And we're going to look at two aspects of repentance. And what it requires of us is to know our sin and to know God's mercy. 
So those are our two points today. Know your sin and know God's mercy. I know only two points. Is he even a Presbyterian? Um, but those are our two points today. And I know like as I'm reading this and I'm thinking about the week uh, and everything that's happened, um, maybe it feels a little insensitive to talk about God being merciful to somebody who's committed such heinous crimes. And so I just want to acknowledge that. Um, and it feels like too much for you, like understand that. Um, and in the same vein, I think the Bible's understanding of sin can actually really help us uh, when we look at the atrocities in this world because it it gives us a way to actually talk about how bad it really is, uh, how bad the problem is, and I think that can be helpful for us. So I'm going to read 2 Samuel 12, uh, 1 through 14. 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 14. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and follow along with me. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the, short, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and you shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Um, please pray with me, and we'll jump into it. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, sometimes it's hard for us uh, to swallow. We pray, Lord, that you would help us see that it is good, uh, and that you are merciful, and that you are kind, and you are patient to us. And we pray that we'd see that uh, through your word today as we uh, look at this story. And we ask this in Jesus' name, because we know that you hear us because of what he's done for us. Amen. Okay, I said we're going to look at repentance. I think this is a really good picture of what repentance actually looks like. It's a pretty big part of the Bible. It's a pretty big part of the Christian life. 
and I know a lot of times that word comes pretty loaded with negative connotations. Uh, some of you maybe imagine like a Catholic like confessional booth. Uh, you imagine harsh pastors. You imagine uh, a lot of unkindness when I say the word repentance. Probably a lot of things are evoked. You maybe even think about God's wrath and God's anger, and you have a picture of a God looking down on you saying, you need to repent. Um, and so I want to acknowledge that, um, and, and I think what we'll find as we look at this passage is that repentance is so much more than that, uh, and in the end it is his mercy on us. So we have two points as we talk about repentance and what it requires. Like I said, know your sin and know God's mercy. And I think basically as we look at this, uh, we will find that God in his loving kindness he brings sin out of darkness and into the light. And because of his mercy, we don't actually have to be afraid of that. A lot of the time, that's very terrifying for us. But because of the goodness of God to take on our sins, we can do that with hope of restoration and reconciliation, even if there are dire consequences in this real world for our sins. Um, but it's hard because sin is very sneaky. Uh, and it can hide even in our own hearts from us very easily. Uh, and as we look at God's mercy, a lot of times what we find is that we don't actually want God's mercy as much as we think that we do. So let's jump in. Point one, know your sin. And really it's like know yourself as well. So let's look at this story. In verse one through four, Nathan comes to David. He comes about nine months after he's committed these offenses. That's a pretty long time. David probably thinks he's gotten away with this. So Nathan very tactfully tells this story about a poor man who has this one precious little ewe lamb. And it says it's like a daughter to him. And it's like this really sweet picture. It's almost like a Pixar short, right? You've got this old man and this little lamb, and you don't really even need any words. Like, he just loves this little lamb so much. It says it sits in his lap. It eats the food out of his bowl. Um... Right? So if you're ever wondering if there's justification in the Bible for loving your pets like humans, there you go. Um, all right, so you've got this great little picture of this man and his ewe lamb. And then what happens? The rich man comes in with zero regard. And even David himself says this man had no pity. He doesn't care. He just takes. He takes the poor man's precious lamb because he didn't want to spare one of his own hundreds of his own flock and he slaughters it for a guest. Okay, the analogy is pretty ripe. If you've been following along in the story, it's kind of like right on the nose. You're like, this is obviously about you, David. And David misses it. David misses it completely. We know that because David actually gives himself his own punishment. We know he's blind to what is happening because he pronounces his own condemnation, which he says should be death says, the man who did this surely shall die. He misses it. And this is why I think it's important to talk about knowing our sin. It's the first part of repentance, because it's sneaky. And it hides even from our own selves with ease. And so here, like, we find David in his discontentment, maybe combined with this power and authority given to him in his position just allows him simply to get away with everything. 
He just takes. And in the end, what we find is it's just greed. He takes what he wants because he can. And the way that this passage talks about it really is just greed. Look at verse 7. It says, I, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and wives. I gave you Israel and Judah. I gave you two kingdoms. I've given you everything. And if this were too little, I would have given you more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Why were you so greedy, David? Why so discontent? Why did you feel you needed this? I've given you everything. And I think sometimes we read passages like this, and maybe we wonder, like, how is it possible we're kind of asking the same question God asks him here, right? How is it possible that David could have so much and so easily just take what he wants? Um, I think there's a few reasons. Uh, for one, when you have that much power and authority, it's just easier. When you are in a position of power and authority, it is so much easier to just take. So I work with college students. They always do like, philosophy 101 and they always come with the story they're like oh today we talked about like is it wrong for a poor man to steal bread to feed his family and that's always the question it's always about a poor man stealing uh you know to feed his family and I'm like why is it never about a rich man right like I think sometimes when you don't have power like you're forced to think about those morals a little bit more and when you do so often when you have money people just turn the other way a lot of times because you can just give more money. Um, and so you just don't have to think about it. And I think that's a lot of what happens. It's just easier. And I think there's a warning for us in that. But second, I think, is discontentment. Second is uh, this thing called discontentment, which is so powerful. And we can justify a lot when we think we need something. We can justify a lot when we think we need something. Discontentment is a powerful force in our lives that guides and directs so much of our actions, and we know it. We're very imbibed with this culture uh, that we live in with notions that we really should be fulfilled. We have a right to be satisfied and should do what we can when we want to get the things that we think will make us happy. For us today, discontentment, I think more than so many things, really can function like sort of a shadow or sort of a blanket in our heart that allows us to justify so many of our actions uh, as we go about getting the things in this life that we think will make us happy. And that's because culturally, getting the things you think to need, that you think you need to make you happy is, a, is now a moral good. Right? We talk about that like you should be able to do what you want to get the things that you think will satisfy. Um, that's a moral good in our culture. That's the you do you culture, radical individualism. Like you have a right to take what you want if it's going to make you happy. It's a moral good in our culture right now. And that's what makes it so easy uh, for us to just take what we want. So I just got back from this thing called Summer Conference. Uh, with RUF. It's a week-long thing at the beach uh, where we go and learn about Jesus, bunch of college students on the beach. It's really wonderful. Uh, and I co-taught a seminar. So we, in the morning, you do all these seminars. I, I taught one on uh, marriage and sex and sexuality. And 
And a lot of what we talked about ended up being about fulfillment. It ended up about, like, we had so many questions about, well, then how do I get happy? Because as I was talking about marriage and singleness um, and saying things like, if you're looking to them to make you happy, they probably won't. And if you're looking to marriage to fulfill you in your life, it actually will let you down quite a bit. And so it was really hard for them to hear this. Uh, And a lot of students just didn't understand, and I kept getting the same question over and over again, just asked in different ways, which is, well, uh, okay, so then how do I get satisfied? Well, if I'm not going to be fulfilled in marriage um, or by, you know, doing what I want with my body, how am I going to be satisfied? It really, like, could not compute to so many of our students. They were confused, and they were like, Like, I don't know what to do with that. Some students were angry, and I had to just say, like, what if you're not promised satisfaction in this life, at least not in a full, eternal, and lasting way? And that angered some of them, because we've been taught that we're able, if we're able to fill ourselves uh, and fill that emptiness that we feel inside, that we deserve to. And so the world can move and adapt according to what we feel based on what we think we need to satisfy us. I'm not saying life is just misery and we shouldn't uh, look for satisfaction in things. Um, But take a look at David's life. I mean, he has everything. He's like the most powerful man in the world. And what does he do? He just keeps taking. It's not enough. And it seems that in this life, especially if we look at David's life, uh, that satisfaction with earthly things just isn't enough. And I think that's actually true. It isn't enough. And I think that points us that we were made for something more. We were actually made to be perfectly fulfilled and satisfied in the presence of God. But we're not yet there, are we? That's not the reality in which we live because we're here in this world which is very broken Um, And God has promised to come and satisfy us and renew our whole lives in this whole world, but we're not there yet. Uh, And when we try to get there, uh, and when we try to have that fulfillment uh, in our lives now and demand it, oftentimes we can justify all sorts of things. And I think that's the point. I know the point I said was, know your sin, and I just went on this rambling dialogue about contentment. But I I say that because I think what we find is that sin can just be so sneaky and it can lurk uh, around so easily in our hearts, particularly in this realm of discontentment. And we find ourselves able to justify all sorts of things, much like David. You know, the question is, why do you need more? Why do you think you need more? What do you need to be satisfied? If we don't know the sin in our hearts, when we feel that, we'll justify anything to get it. And we can. Most of the things, the internet has sort of put the power of gods and kings right into our hands in that way. And so it's important that we spend time trying to know our hearts. Knowing our sin is tricky because a lot of times it can masquerade as a good thing. We were made to be satisfied. Uh, and it's not necessarily wrong to look for that. But when we do ultimately, uh, we can change God's morals, right? Right because we take this cultural moral of 
I need to be happy, and we replace it with what God has said is right and wrong. So as I look at this passage, I think there's two very practical things uh, that can help us know ourselves and know our sin. Uh, One, we need a Nathan. We need a Nathan, not an actual prophet. Uh, If you find one, you can tell me. uh, That might be helpful. Uh, But we need someone like Nathan in our lives. Uh, And two, we need to be specific uh, when it comes to repentance. So we need a Nathan, right? Nathan, he actually uses his anger as a force uh, for justice. Uh, He uses his anger at David's sin as a force for good and change. He sees all of David's sin. He confronts him about it. Uh, And I wonder, like, if you made a big moral failure, do you have somebody in your life who would risk telling you that you've messed up? Do you have someone like that? Because I think a lot of times uh, today we think a friend is just supposed to be our ultimate cheerleader. We think a friend is just supposed to be someone who cheers us along all the way, even if we're wrong. And I think that's a pretty bad friend, actually. Um, And we need somebody like David in our life who knows us and is willing to risk uh, offending us to tell us the truth about who we are, what we've done. Um, That's not like a warrant to go be all nitpicky and pick apart each other's sins. That's not what I'm saying at all. Um, But like... I just think it's hard for us to risk offending people, and it's hard for us to hear things from a friend, uh, especially if you're a person who has a lot of authority and power in your life. So, like, for me, if somebody has more authority than me and they tell me I did something wrong, I'm like, yes, please, I want to please you. Feel free to tell me that. But if it's a peer or somebody who I think is below my station, somehow that becomes a lot harder, doesn't it? Maybe you've experienced this with your spouse Um, maybe your siblings, um, all of a sudden somebody tells you you've done something wrong and you're like, excuse me? Um, What gives you the right? Right? And so I think there's a warning here for us. A sin, like I said, it's sneaky. It lurks around um, our hearts and our discontentment and we need people in our lives who know us. We need people in our lives who know us and love us enough to risk confronting us and asking us hard questions. And we can learn from David, one of the most powerful men to ever walk this earth, that we can actually accept that and humble ourselves before God and others. And I know some of you maybe don't have a person like that in your life. You don't feel like you have that intimacy uh, with another person, but it is not too late to start. Um, You have to start somewhere. So I'm not saying go grab a stranger and tell them your deepest, darkest sins. Um, But it is worth your time to begin uh, to explore the depths of our hearts with one another. And so maybe you've been out to lunch with somebody a few times and you kind of keep the conversation up here. Like what would it look like to risk being vulnerable and allowing somebody into your life in that way? Second, as we talk about knowing our sins um, and we talk about confession and repentance, uh, I think something that's helpful is to be specific. That's what we find here. Nathan's very specific about what David has done, how it's affected his community and his life, and I think there's real healing in that. There's real healing in that. You know, how how many of us have confessed something to someone and done it kind of halfway? We try to make it sound 
like it's not as bad as it really is. You know, why do we do that? We do that because we're afraid. We do that because it's actually very scary and there can be real life consequences. Um, it's really hard to talk about things like this because if we were sometimes fully and truly honest, the fear is, well, I can lose something. I could lose my job. I could lose my spouse. I could lose my friend. There's a real risk in being honest about the things we've done in our lives and the deep, dark recesses uh, of our hearts with one another. But as God's people, um, I think we have a very rich resource to be able to do that. Because as I was thinking about this, and I'm like, here's the thing. If God is not merciful, you shouldn't do that. If God is not merciful, there's no reason you should ever talk about the things in your life that are dark and scary with another person. It's too much, and there's too much on the line. But if God is merciful, then we have a very rich resource for healing uh, and for reconciliation and for restoration in our lives with the people in our lives as well. And that brings us to our next point. So know your sin, but even more so, and ever more so, know God's mercy. Know God's mercy. So David pronounces his own judgment on himself. It's death. And he thinks this is like a real story about somebody, and he thinks he's about to bring justice in his own community, right? And then Nathan goes like, dude, it's you, right? That's the Hebrew dude. Um, he says, it's you. You're the man, Right? And then God, uh, we get where God confronts. He says, I've given you everything. I would have given you more, but you have despised the word of the Lord. And then he goes on explaining everything David did, all the effects of it, how it was awful. And then he pronounces his uh, punishment on him. And he says, a lot of bad things are going to happen. And I think, like, that's the dawning moment for him, right? Sometimes we don't really see the consequences of our sin until we're sort of awake. We don't see the reality of our sin until we're awakened to the consequences of them. A lot of times we don't see the reality of our sin until we're actually experiencing the consequences of them. It's really easy to think we've, just because we've gotten away with something, that it wasn't actually that bad. You see that a lot with like addiction uh, to alcohol or porn or anything like that. Like when you live alone, uh, it seems easy to do things that don't really affect others. And then the closer you get uh, in relationship, in friendships, maybe a spouse, like all of a sudden these things start to actually affect your relationships and you will always find that. That you are not an island and the things that we do always affect the people around us and we can ask the question like is it God's kindness that he would expose our sin like that because a lot of times when our sin is exposed we just think God hates us if we're honest but big but if God can as he says put away our sins then I think the answer is yes and I think David knows this mercy. He's confronted, convicted, his sins are brought to light. 
specifically and by somebody who cares about him and loves him enough to do so? And what is David's response? He says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He sort of wakes up and he sees the reality of what he's done. I have sinned against the Lord. Think about what else just dawned on him too, right? He just condemned himself to death. Surely this man deserves to die. He said that. And Nathan's like, you're that guy. You're actually that guy, David. And then did you notice that though God's discipline on him is really horrible, it's not as bad as David would have had it? It's not his life. So often God is more merciful to you than your own imagination. He does not condemn David to death. And then he actually says through Nathan, and Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. How can God do that? Because the consequences for all that David has done probably should be what he pronounced on himself. It is because God is faithful to his covenant promises. It's because he knows that one day he will make a way for sinful people to dwell perfectly in his presence through the sacrifice of his son Jesus, the true king, through whom God can say, I have put away your sins, you shall not die. And I like the way in the New Testament, Colossians 2, 3 puts it. He says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He set it aside. I have put away your sins. I think the question of the Bible, really from Genesis 3, is how is God going to fix the problem of sin? How is he going to be able to set it aside? And the answer here is by nailing it to the cross. That's what actually allows us to be honest and even accept the consequences of our sins in this life, like David does. To be honest about them. We're talking about repentance. Guys, repentance is a hard thing. It's hard for a lot of reasons. It's hard for one because you have to really take an honest, deep look into the dark recesses of your own heart and see that it's probably worse than you think. And then you have to see that ultimately these things are an offense to the God who gave you life in the first place. But then I think the real hard thing for so many, especially Christians today, is seeing that we're not condemned. That's a lot harder for us than we like to imagine. I had this pastor who used to always say, he's like, would you punish yourself for your sins? You're adding to the work of the cross. Can you do that? And he would just ask, can you do that? Can you add to the work of Jesus on the cross by punishing yourself? And that always struck me. Can I add to the cross? And I think when we try to add to the cross, um, 
a lot of times I think we're doing kind of as the passage says today, despising the word of the Lord. Because he has paid our debt in full. And when you try to punish yourself for your sins, um, it's an attempt to add to the cross. And I know this intimately. Uh, I do this a lot. Uh, some of you probably lean more towards doing that, like I do. Um, depends on your disposition. But God can say, I have put away your sins. You shall not die. And he can do that because of Jesus. He can do that because of Jesus. And I know, like, standing naked in God's mercy for many of us is a lot harder than trying to make up for our sins and punishing yourselves and adding to the cross. And I'm not saying we shouldn't try to make up for our sins with one another. I think we actually have a warrant to do all that we can to work towards reconciliation uh, in the relationships of our lives for our failures against one another. But this passage does show us that our sins are ultimately against the one who we could never repay. And so I think repentance helps us see that because this relationship is fixed and our sins are put away. We can begin the hard work of reconciling these relationships. Um, and I think that's the real power of repentance, that in God's mercy we're not condemned, and that allows us to move forward and to be honest about our lives. So what do we do with this? Know our sin, know God's mercy. Um, how do we actually do that? Um, well, I think what we're told to do in the Bible is to cultivate a life of honesty and repentance. It's something we practice. It's something we're actually told to cultivate. And in a way, there's sort of a remarkable simplicity to this passage, right? It's just another story about sin and repentance and how God deals with us in it, in his mercy. This is what a lot of the Christian life looks like. Because of God's mercy, we actually can repent. And it actually says in the New Testament, in Romans 2, that it is God's kindness that leads us to repent. It's his kindness and I think we can look at David's life, and that can help us begin to take an honest look at our own hearts and our own actions, our own discontentment, our own greed, all the places we try to fill ourselves, um, and, and take an honest look at them. Because uh, to really know God's mercy, you have to know what he's being merciful about. Was the problem in your heart bad enough that the Son of God actually had to die in your place? Was it actually that bad? The growth in the Christian life, a lot of times, it looks like we're getting worse, not better. I see this a lot. So, like, a lot of times with students, maybe, and even in my own life, like, you're stuck in a particular sin. You're begging God to take it from you. God, please take this particular sin away from me. And you ask, and you ask, and you ask. And nothing seems to be changing in regards to this particular sin. But what I've noticed is that as a person continues to practice this life of being honest about their sin before others and before God, what they don't notice is happening in their life is that even though this one area doesn't seem to be changing, what's branching off in their life is compassion, patience, kindness with other people who fail like they do god is actually sanctifying and making you more like christ but it may not be in the way uh, that you expect and so often this is like the power of repentance to make us more like christ and we're called to a life of it
Um, we're called to cultivate a life of honesty and repentance, and we can do that. But it's risky to ask God to show you the depths of your own heart. But because of God's faithfulness and his mercy towards us in Christ, we can actually do that without fear. We really can. And it actually begins to change us. Uh, and I think about David's life and uh, like what this does for him in his life. And you read the Psalms, and actually a lot of the Psalms are Psalms of David. And a lot of them are Psalms about repentance. We actually read one, Psalm 51. It was one of those moments where I was like, oh, this is the analogy I should have used in my sermon because it's really palatable. It makes a lot of sense. But a lot of the Psalms of David actually really work for this. And I was just reading one of them, Psalm 139. Uh, you see, like, David later in his life is willing to ask, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of life everlasting. That's a bold prayer. Uh, that's stuff that we can actually do if God is merciful to us in Christ and has fully and utterly paid uh, our debt against him. And it allows us to do what Hebrews 4.16 says, which is to come and draw with confidence near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you want to be humble? Do you want to be loving? Do you want to be a person of substance? Repentance is the way. So often the Christian life, the way up is down. And repentance is where you will find that. And what you will find is God's tender mercy. Now, the pastor would always say, for every look you take at your sin, take 10 looks at the cross. Uh, and that's really hard to do when we take a look at our sin. Uh, but what we do find is that God really, truly is merciful. And as we gaze upon the beauty of Christ and what he's done for us on the cross, we find that that is true and that we are not condemned. He has put away our sins. So let us rejoice and ask for his help in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your mercy. Uh, and thank you uh, for the life that we get to live uh, under you. Lord, you are more kind and more merciful uh, than we can possibly imagine. So much so that uh, you say in, in your word, Lord, that uh, when our hearts condemn us, you are greater than our hearts. And that's really good news for people like us. And so we pray that you'd help us cling to that. In Jesus' name, amen.